The following audio is from Life Baptist Church in Las Vegas, Nevada. For more information about our church, please visit lifebaptistchurch.com. Have you ever read something in the Bible and you have no idea what it means? And I'm not talking about you just don't get some of it or that you don't understand all of its implications. I mean complete confusion. You don't know what it means. You don't know why it's there. You don't know whether or not it's relevant for you today. So you read it and then you reread it and then you re-reread it and nothing. And you're thinking, let me go get a cup of coffee. It's early in the morning. I'll be able to think a little bit more clearly with coffee. And the coffee's great, but then again, coffee is always great. But you still don't understand the text. So then you think to yourself, maybe another Bible translation will be easier to understand. And you find out you can be confused in more than just one translation. (laughs) And then it hits you. Someone gave me a study Bible years ago. It's been sitting on the shelf. I haven't cracked it in years, but I think I remember there was like some commentary and explanation down at the bottom of each page. So you go and you pull that Bible down and you open the thing up and you look for the verse and there's commentary on the verses just before the one you're confused about. And there is commentary on the verses just after the one you're confused about. And there is nothing on the verses you're actually confused about. It's like a conspiracy against you. Okay? Any of you been there before? Amen. Amen. All right. Some of you are like, no, I've never been there because I just email you. And yes, you do. And I thank you for that. But my point is, Scripture can be really confusing. And we understand that. We, we kind of have that in our mind going in, that there might be parts of the Bible that are confusing, maybe around prophecy or the Levitical law or maybe a big theological term. We understand that parts are going to be harder than others. But what happens whenever you're confused about an essential belief? What happens when you're confused about a key truth that has immediate relevance in your life? As we enter back into our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of John, we are right in the middle of Jesus' discourse on the bread of life. And Jesus has already shared some incredibly confusing topics. He's already covered the will of God, election, predestination, human responsibility, future resurrection, and a couple of other deep truths along the way. But he's not done there yet. He's going to go on from there to talk about coming down from heaven, seeing God the Father, believing in him for eternal life, and here's the doozy, that people need to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It was so confusing to that first crowd that it says in John 6.60, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? The confusion led to grumbling. It got so bad in their grumbling that at one point Jesus just pauses and he says, does this cause you to stumble? In other words, are are you going to let this trip you up or will you trust me? Now, this exchange in John chapter 6 is crucial for two main reasons. One, there are major theological implications and two, there are major 
practical implications. Theologically, this is where Jesus is sharing how belief in him is essential to eternal life. And we recognize the significance of eternal life for every single believer. We need to know that. But practically speaking, Jesus is teaching us how to walk forward in faith even when we don't understand everything he's saying. That's important. Because on this side of eternity, there will always be portions of Scripture that we don't fully understand. On this side of eternity, there's going to be those moments where you read a text and you're thinking, did I get what he was saying? Do I understand what he means? All of that comes in. Christianity is a progressive journey of faith. And a part of that journey of faith is that you continue to walk forward even in your confusion. It might take a while. It might be a struggle. You, you might not feel comfortable, but you continue to lean into him in the confusion. This morning, I've got two big truths for you. And these two big truths are truths that I want you to remember anytime you don't understand a portion of God's word. Here's truth number one. God's word is true even when my understanding is limited. God's word is true even when my understanding is limited. And truth number two, my understanding is strengthened even when my faith is weak. My understanding is strengthened even when my faith is weak. We put the faith we have in the God we know, and over time, he makes things more clear. Now, I want you to see how those two truths are applied in the text that we get into this morning and also over the next couple of weeks. So if you're not already there, I invite you to go with me in your Bibles, John's Gospel, chapter number 6. John's Gospel, chapter number 6, we're in verses 41 through 51. I'm speaking this morning on the Word of God. John chapter 6, 41 through 51. As you find your place in the text, let me just kind of remind people that this is the third major section in Jesus' discourse on the bread of life. And the entire discourse, which spans 50 verses, has one essential truth that it is trying to convey. Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. That truth is easy enough to understand. But then Jesus goes through, and he elaborates on that truth by a number of other ways of helping pull out that main idea. So he talked about the work of God as it relates to Jesus being the bread of life. That was one of those sections. Then he talked about the will of God as it relates to Jesus being the bread of life. And then today we get into the word of God as it relates to Jesus being the bread of life. Again, all of these sections further explain the main point. Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. So this morning, we're not going to read the entire text in advance. We're going to pray, and then we're going to begin to work through it piece by piece. So keep your Bibles open to John chapter 6. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. We ask God that your spirit guide us in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want to take just a moment so that we can talk about how we're going to work through this text. 
This entire text that we're getting into today, verses 41 through 51, is the first part of this section on the Word of God as it relates to Jesus being the bread of life. We're going to deal with 41 through 51 this week, and then we're going to come back and deal with 52 through 59 this next week. But I want you to know, once again, all of this still points to the main truth Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. That's the primary truth. But listen, that has been the primary truth since verse number 26. I share that because verses 41 through 51 contains no new truths other than what he has already shared in previous verses. There's a few new details but there's no new truths. The only real change is the manner in which he begins to address these truths. At this particular point, how he addresses it becomes far more symbolic in nature. So here's what I'm going to try to do over this week and next week. Instead of emphasizing what he said, which we've been covering for weeks on end, I'm going to emphasize how they responded to what he said. Okay. In other words, how do you continue to trust God and walk forward in faith when you do not understand what he's saying? So let's begin. Look with me. Verse 41. It starts with this phrase. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him. Now, the word therefore always points us back to something that has been previously stated. It's letting us know that the grumbling is a result of what he has already said. So in verses 41 through 42, it clearly pinpoints the two main areas they were grumbling about. The first is Jesus said he came down out of heaven. They did not like that. The second part is that he continued to claim that God was his father. Now, I want to point out at this section as well that the term the Jews does not refer to the entire Jewish population. It refers to those Jewish leaders who were antagonistic towards Jesus, otherwise known as the opposition party. Now, that group consistently thought of Jesus on a human level. That is, he was a fellow Galilean. He was the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. Verse number 42. They knew that he came from the despised town of Nazareth, based on chapter 1, verse 46. And just like those in Judea, chapter 5, verse 18, they had hardened their hearts against him as Messiah. And listen, I can understand why they hardened their hearts. Think about it from a purely humanistic perspective. I grew up on a street with a lot of friends who also grew up on that same street. And we would play ball together, and we would build forts together, and we would get in trouble together. And we would hang out at each other's houses. We had meals at each other's houses. I knew their parents. They knew my parents. So if one of those guys were to come along the way and say, I came from heaven, and God is my father, I would have laughed in his face. Because I knew where he grew up. I knew his parents. I, I understood kind of that same background right there. Well, that's basically the exact same thing that's taking place right here. We find in verse number 42 that they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? In other words, like, hey, guys, you know who that is, don't you? That's little Jesus. We grew up together. 
We hung out together. That's little Jesus. He fell out of Mordecai's olive tree. You remember little Jesus? We, we would go out and we'd go fishing at the Sea of Galilee every summer. He always caught more fish than us. We never understood why. That's, that's little Jesus. You know who we're talking about. Now look at what it says at the second part of verse 42. How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Hey, Jesus, we're not buying it. We know who your parents are. We know where you came from. And you're saying you came down out of heaven? We're not buying it. Listen, what he said did not line up with what they believed. What he said did not line up with what they believed to be true. Now, I want you to personalize this. What do you do when what God says in his word does not align with what you believe? What do you do when what God says in his word does not align with your convictions and your preconceived ideas and your view of justice and your understanding of God's character or even your thoughts about yourself? What do you do in that situation? For them, they started grumbling. Notice his response. Instead of addressing their confusion, he commanded them in verse 23, do not grumble among yourselves. Their grumbling reflected a rebellious heart, and I'll explain why in just a few moments. Now, you might think, Jesus, that's harsh. I mean, what if they had honest questions? Well, why didn't Jesus just kind of engage them and listen to their concerns and, and try to help them work through their questions? That sounds like something Jesus would do. The reason is there is a difference between an honest question and rebellious smokescreen. Had Jesus made those claims without first miraculously feeding 5,000 and walking on water, calming a storm, healing the man at Bethesda, healing the nobleman's son, casting out demons, turning water to wine, had Jesus made those claims without any of that other context, you can understand their skepticism. But Jesus constantly backed up his words by his works. When someone willfully rejects inconvenient truth, their mind does not change if you provide a detailed defense of that truth. If they didn't want to hear the big idea, they definitely don't want to hear the smaller details. So instead, he just says, stop grumbling. <laughs> just don't do that anymore. Now, I want you to pause here for a moment. There might be certain truths right now in God's word that you're struggling to believe. I want you to stop and ask this question. Is my struggle because God is not clear? Or is my struggle because I don't like what he said? At some point, we have to answer the question, will I trust him? So in verse number 44, Jesus uttered some solemn words. He said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, once again, he emphasizes 
humanity's inability and helplessness to respond to him apart from God's sovereign call. People cannot just simply come to Jesus whenever they want. We've already seen this discussion first opened up in verse 37. He's repeating that same truth right now. So prior to Christ, here's what the Bible tells us. Prior to Christ saving a person, that person is dead in sin, Ephesians 2. Slaves to unrighteousness, John 8. Alienated from God, Colossians 1. Hostile towards Him, Romans 5. They are spiritually blind, 2 Corinthians 4. Spiritual captives, 2 Timothy 2. Trapped in Satan's kingdom, Colossians 1. Powerless to change their sinful natures, Romans 5. And unable to please God, Romans 8. And incapable of understanding spiritual truth, 1 Corinthians 2. Scripture then tells us that people are to come... They are to believe, they are to repent, they are to follow, but all of that is predicated upon the Father calling them. Scripture is clear in this area, and they did not like it. So verse 44 ends, with all whom the Father draws will come, and Jesus says, he will raise them up on the last day. Now that is a promise He already stated in verses 39 and 40, and he's going to state it again in verse 54. Now, verse 45 is a paraphrase of Isaiah 54, 13. Jesus shared it to emphasize that his teaching was consistent with the Old Testament. The prophets said, and they shall all be taught of God. Jesus is restating that truth in this context. Those who come to saving faith will do so because they are instructed of God. Drawing and teaching are merely different aspects of God's sovereign call to salvation. It is through the truth of God's word that God draws people to his son who is Christ. As a result, Jesus now makes the promise in verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, because Jesus was eternally one with the Father, and because Jesus was sent by the Father, and because Jesus alone had seen the Father, that means that Jesus alone could speak authoritatively about the Father. Verse 46, so when this group was rejecting his words because they didn't think it lined up with their view of the Father... Jesus is basically saying, you don't know who the Father is. You've not seen him. You don't understand him. You don't know what I know. He's speaking from a position of authority. By rejecting the truths that Christ shared, they had no chance at eternal life. And remember, the big point of the entire discourse is Jesus is the bread of life, and only those who savingly believe in him have eternal life. Now, here is a challenging concept, and I want to encourage you, write down these references for yourself, because I'm just going to read them. Write them down for yourself, and you'll know why I say it's challenging in just a moment. Here's the challenge. Those who continually reject the truth of God may find that God judicially hardens their hearts to truth. Let me say that again. Those who continually reject the truth of God may find that God judicially hardens their hearts 
to truth. For those who refused to believe his teachings, Jesus made the truth more obscure through the use of parables. Write this reference down. Matthew 13, verse 10 and following. His disciples asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And here's how Jesus replied. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because... While seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. He goes on to say, For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. John chapter 12, verses 37 through 40. It speaks of those who have rejected Jesus after witnessing his miracles. Here's what it says. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. For this reason, they could not believe. He has blinded their eyes And he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. When I said this was a challenging section, I meant it was a challenging section. And it's not done there. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 tells us, in times that some will not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved and will find, listen to this, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false. What does that mean? I don't fully understand it. I don't know all of the implications, but here's what I can tell you, Isaac, on a basic level. Here's what that's telling us. When people continually reject truth and embrace a lie, God allows the lie to envelop them so that the truth becomes more obscure. That is a challenging concept. But again, it's in the Word. What do you do when what you read in the Word is hard to understand? Like, what does that mean? I don't understand that. What do you do? We're going to be applying exactly what you do in this. So because of those things, notice the incredibly solemn warning in verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now you say, boy, that's not a solemn warning. No, remember, every time he uses truly, truly, it is because he is grabbing your attention about something that is extremely important. Here's what he's grabbing your, their attention about. To reject his truth is to reject his grace. And to reject his grace is to reject his gift of eternal life. Only those who believe in Jesus have eternal life. Verse 47. Now in a genius move, he now contrasts himself as the true bread out of heaven with the manna that their fathers ate in the wilderness. 
Manna was miraculously provided by God to sustain their physical life for a certain period of time. But it could not impart eternal life. Their fathers ate that bread, and according to verse 9, they still died. It, It couldn't save them from not seeing physical death. But Jesus, he's saying, is the true bread which comes down out of heaven, and that those who eat of it will never die. Now, eating here, it refers to believing in him, trusting in him, savingly believing in him. It comes along the same lines of taste and see that the Lord is good. It's that same idea that when you taste him, when you believe him, when you savingly trust in him, you will see that the Lord is good. That idea of tasting him, Eating his flesh is exactly what we get into this next week, verses 52 through 59. But listen, this is where the parallels are uncanny. In the final verses, Jesus is making a symbolic and a very personal comparison. By contrasting himself with the true bread which came down out of heaven, with the manna that their fathers ate in the wilderness, He is now bringing them back to a familiar story in their own history. Manna, if you'll remember, was God's gracious provision for his people after their exodus out of Egypt. Just as they had witnessed God's miraculous plagues that he sent against Egypt. Just as they had witnessed God miraculously parting the Red Sea so that they walk over on dry ground. Just as they saw God miraculously go through and take out the entire Egyptian army. They get onto the other side of the Red Sea and Moses and Miriam strike up the band and they lead the people of God in praise and in worship for what he just did. It's this beautiful picture of celebration and praise and worship. But here's what happened next. Next, if you have your Bibles open, go over real quickly. This is going to be Exodus 15. Exodus 15. I'm going to be reading verses 22 all the way through verse six, or chapter 16, verse 4. Listen to this. This is an unbelievable description. 22 and following. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness, remember three days in just a moment, and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people, here it is, grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered him uh, with a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. There he made for them a statue and regulation. Here it is. And there he tested them. Hold on to that thought. There he tested them. What's the test about? Verse 26. If you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God, and you will do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statues, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Then they came to Elam, and there were 12 springs of water and 70 date palms, and they camped there beside the waters. Go into chapter 16. Then they set out from Elam, and they all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Let that one sink in for a moment. 
which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month of their departure from the land of Egypt, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died in the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate uh, bread at full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Now, remember, he made the comparison saying, just as the bread came from heaven, manna that your fathers ate, I'm the true bread that came out of heaven. Now, get this, get this idea in your mind. It says at the very end that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. In other words, will you walk in what I say? Will you do what I tell you to do? Will you believe my word even if you don't understand it? Will you trust in me? So, it was this ongoing test that the children of Israel went through throughout their wilderness experience. The test was, will you believe what God says? The question is not, what do you see? The question is not, how do I feel? The question is, will you believe what God says? Now, the comparisons here are revealing. Within three days, get this timeline, three days of standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, praising God for all that he did, his miraculous signs, his miraculous provision, his miraculous wonders. Within three days, they found themselves in Mara. The word Mara means bitterness. Listen, listen. You will find in your life, God will not only allow you to encounter bitter moments, he will lead you into bitter experiences. And when you get there, let this sink in. When you get there, the question is, will you do what he said? Verse 26, it's, it gave the test. There he tested them. What was the test? Verse 26, will you give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord your God? He allows us those bitter moments to find out whether or not we truly believe what we just amen Sunday on Tuesday afternoon when our world's falling apart. So here it is. Their next stop was Elam. Elam was an oasis. There were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees there. Do you know how far Elam is from Mara? 12 miles. They were 12 miles away from an oasis and they were grumbling like God had never done anything for them. Some of you might be in a bitter place right now and it is easy in that bitter moment to shift from praise of God to bitterness and grumbling because you don't understand what God is currently doing you around you. But part of the reason you're there is because of a test. That test will show if you truly believe what God has declared. Here's a truth that my pastor shared many times, the one that myself and Bria, we were together in that church. He said, never doubt in the darkness what God has shown you in the light. When God gives you a word, you hold on to the word. You hold on to it. You don't let go of it. You might not understand it. You might not understand all the implications of it, but you hold on to his word because if you don't, here's what usually happens. We start to grumble. 
Same thing that happened to them in John 6 is the same thing that their forefathers did. Literally, after Elam, they set out to the wilderness of sin. Do you think God has an uncanny way of dropping in a little bit of you know, drama along the way? Like, literally, this is an incredible story. And again, they start grumbling. In God's grace, God sent manna to them, even when they were grumbling. He rained down manna from heaven, but here's what he said, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instructions. Will you believe what God says? The cycle kept repeating itself. Over the next eight verses, it speaks six more times about their grumbling. Over the next 40 plus years, again, they became proficient experts in grumbling. Every time they come to a problem, grumble, 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 God delivers, God rebukes, God challenges, and then they come back and praise until the next problem. Grumble, 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 grumble again. And over and over, the question is, will you believe what he says? Fast forward to Jesus' discourse on the bread of life once again in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. Just like their fathers before them, this group had witnessed Jesus doing the miraculous. They had witnessed him making a way where there was no way. They had witnessed him doing things only God can do. They saw him literally provide for thousands based on a kid's lunch. But just like their fathers before them, immediately when he said something they don't understand, they began to grumble. It's in this glorious moment of comparison that Jesus reminds this group of people that your people have been here before. The same thing they were doing then is the same thing their fathers did before. And by rejecting God's word, they are rejecting God's grace. And in this time, the stakes were not entering the promised land. The stakes are in entering eternal life. Now, I don't know what promise, what text, what portion of scripture you may be struggling with today. But I do know that there is a human tendency in all of us to either avoid it, to reject it, or to grumble about what we don't like. When you encounter those texts that you don't understand, remember our two key truths. God's word is true even when my understanding is limited. And my understanding is strengthened even when my faith is weak. Take the little bit of faith you have and place it in God. Over time, he makes things clearer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would encourage those today that they are struggling in the area of their faith. They're struggling in in not understanding a text or they're struggling in a promise that you gave and it doesn't seem like it's coming to fruition around them. And there's a part in which they've been at it for so long that it's just frustrating. And that tendency to grumble can often get in the way of our praise. So God, we ask today, would you give us the ability to take the faith we have in the God we know and to keep walking forward even when we don't understand everything? In Jesus' name, amen.